0: Welcome to Making Things Right, an invitation to restoring LGBTQ plus faith. I'm your host, Brian Mitzel. If you're tired of the debates and the division around faith and sexuality, if you're interested in more productive ways to engage and solution together and bridge divides between Christian and LGBTQ plus communities, then I think this is for you. So, welcome to the table and welcome to Making Things Right. So we built a podcast series, it's a mini series, it's seven episodes, and it's built on a foundational essay that I wrote, That I, it's a labor of love, <laughs> called Making Things Right. So today is the kickoff episode, woohoo, <laughs> a little nervous, not really, I mean, podcasting is such a strange thing, you're sitting here talking into a microphone, but thankfully I have somebody across the table from me that I'm going to introduce in a minute, so it's not as impersonal as it might seem. But today, we're just going to do an overview of making things right, the whole paper and some of the key concepts there, and sort of set the stage for the rest of the podcast series, where we'll do some deeper dives into some of these topics that we touch on today. Today, I'm being joined by a brand new friend, which is silly, because I feel like we've heard of each other for years, and now all of a sudden, we're getting to know each other. But he brings quite a story and a conviction around such things. His name's B.T. Harmon. He's an Atlanta legend, at least in my mind. Uh, Speaker, podcaster, thought leader, and definite advocate for us LGBTQ Christians, but also for the conservative church. Uh, His podcast, uh, Blue Babies Pink, super cool, 44 episode creative story of his coming out and has 1.3 million downloads, just a handful more than mine. And he just happens to be sitting right here with me today. So welcome, BT.
1: What's up, Brian? Man, I'm so glad to be here. This is it, the inaugural first ever... Making Things Right podcast. (laughs) What an honor. Glad to be here.
0: Yes, it is. It's fun. I'm looking forward to it. Give us the cliff notes on what Blue Baby's Pink is about.
1: Yeah, so Blue Baby's Pink is um, essentially just a memoir of my life. And uh, to make a, a very long story short, as you mentioned, it's it's 44 episodes. Each episode's about nine minutes, so it's not really long. But um, basically, it's my story of growing up in North Alabama in a small town. Uh, my dad was a Southern Baptist pastor of a, of a pretty large church, and um, I was the youngest of three sons. And as it turns out, was am will always be, uh, gay. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, growing up in a small town uh, when your dad's a pastor, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, 2000s, you, you know, it was definitely not homosexuality was a taboo topic. It was not okay. It was not discussed, very frowned upon, obviously. And so I did what, uh, you know, millions of young men have done before me. I went deep into that closet. And so graduated college, jumped on board with this startup and really became a workaholic. You know, I've often said like everybody, you know, when you're coping with pain, you grab a vice and mine was workaholism, which I (laughs) I don't recommend, but I do say it's, it's one of the healthier vices to choose, (laughs) right? Versus hardcore drugs or alcohol or gambling, you know, so... Um, So just worked myself to the bone through my 20s, you know, 60 and 80 hour work weeks. And that was really my attempt at running from the pain of what I was dealing with. And so, so yeah, uh, I hit a wall. I actually took two trips to the hospital in my late 20s around anxiety and sort of basically sort of manifesting the symptoms of having a stroke or a heart attack. And they did an EKG and were like, you're fine. Are you under stress? I'm like, yeah, I've been under stress for about 30 years now. Uh, And then after that, um, shortly after I, downloaded an app called tinder and i went on my first date um and that was interesting. <laughs> was that the
0: year of fear 2016 uh when it was probably it? no that was a little before yeah uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh because so then uh, yeah i after- suppose you don't like come out after your first date yeah well, right yeah, yeah yeah and
1: i'd become <laughs> i'd begin coming out to to close friends and family you know years before sure, that sure. but anyways um Came out publicly in 2016 via my blog and podcast Blue Babies Pink. Uh, met a man in 2015 named Brett. My name I can go by BT now, but my birth name is Brett. Oh, his that's name
0: right? Is Brett. Brett and Brett. Yeah, yeah. Very remember. cute for like yeah. one
1: hot minute, yeah. and been kind of annoying. <laughs> uh, and as it turns out, he was love of my life. We got married in 2018, yep. and so we're now yeah, three, four years into marriage, and we are just uh, we we have two cats. We have mm-hmm. purchased a house together. We have. Uh, a vegetable garden and flowers and we are just living the most (laughs) lovely, boring, domesticated life. And I'm telling you, Brian, I would not trade it for the world. So Uh. in a really healthy place. I love my work. I love my husband. Um, I'm so grateful. I'm surrounded by great friends. Um, You know, we could talk a long time about my family uh, and sort of their response to all this, but overall they've done really well. Mm -hmm. Um, There's definitely been some hard times with them, but um, but all in all, it's been a, a really interesting journey. Yeah. journey. I know it's a little cliche, but it's it cool. feels like a journey. Yeah.
0: And it's cool because we have, as I said in the beginning, we're new, you know, new friends here. So I didn't know your story until, or your background until you just shared it. And it's very similar to mine. Um, and uh, especially the thing I remembered is like how it, really in my twenties, I was good. Like I was, I was high five with God and okay, if it's gay or God, I'm going with God. And, and, and it, it didn't even feel like that much of a sacrifice in the big picture. I had great friends. I had a good career. I was happy. I had great guy friends. I actually did date women a little bit. Just didn't feel like I could cross the finish line, if you will. <laughs> um, but it really wasn't until kind of that transition into my 30s where all I'm looking around and all my friends are getting married and having right. kids and moving and I really felt left behind yeah and that was a catalyst for me to start having new conversations with God about this stuff so that yeah. I really resonate with that
1: there's there's been a lot of us on that same path
0: and uh, it's yeah it's always interesting it's cool well thank you for that thanks for joining today it's awesome glad to be here Let's dive in to making things right. So I uh, I gave this paper in advance to uh, BT and I just asked him to read through it and see what it resonates with him. I'm gonna talk about some key themes that showed up for me, uh, a- a- and see how they sit with you, and we'll go from there. Love and the first one um, I talked about in the introduction. Because it really, I remember when I was writing this, I had to decide who is my audience, you know, like it's not the whole world. It's not just my mom. Like, you know, who am I talking to here? And I kind of realized in the process that it was similar to the audience of people that I've been having conversations for years about the sort of the canyon between faith and sexuality, both communities and otherwise. Um, But I didn't really have a whole lot of patience or skill to talk to folks in the extremes. Right? I call like, the, the, the folks that make the noise in the news. Like, and, and I really felt like I'm kind of tired of being spoken for. Like That's <laughs> not me. You know, I'm not extremely conservative. I'm not an extremely liberal. I'm somewhere in the middle trying to figure this thing out, first for myself, and then to help other folks think through this and have more productive thoughts or ways you know, to engage hurting people. So I come up with this concept called the quieter middle, where I think most of us live. Uh, And I think, and maybe it's my idealistic self, I use the 20-80 rule, 20% on the outside, 80% on the inside. I don't know what the right percentage is, but it's sort of my optimistic way of saying, darn it, I'm tired of being spoken for, and I'm not really interested in this battle and debate going on. I I would like to give a voice to folks in the quieter middle who are open to more productive ways of thinking about and talking about and acting on matters of faith and sexuality. Any thoughts there? Yeah, that's my exact
1: experience. I think 2080 is about right. You know, I, I have this theory that our our culture now, even in the last five to 10 years, it's accelerated. Uh, our culture and even our technology incentivizes extreme opinions, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like milk toast or, or even moderate opinions, milk toast is probably derogatory, I would even say that, just a moderate opinion does not create a good headline. Mm-hmm. Um, although the reality is that's where the truth is often found. And so, yeah, my experience is that the the polls of this conversation on the right and the left, they have hijacked it. They have garnered and sort of captured all the attention. And, uh, but I think you're right. I think the, that middle 80, we're still here Mm -hmm. sort of being overlooked and trying to figure out how do we, how do we navigate Mm -hmm. amidst the screaming and the screeching, Mm -hmm. right? How do we rise up and have our voice be heard? Uh, that's separate from all the extreme voices.
0: And what I find fascinating about this quieter middle audience, um, is that we may lean one way or another when it comes to matters of uh, morality around homosexuality and what the Bible says about that, right? And I don't mean to be sarcastic, but we can have different opinions on that. One might be more conservative, one more progressive. But when you kind of see the landscape of, um, of what I think are some wrongs that have been done to LGBTQ plus individuals in the name of God. Um, they're in the middle there going, you know, I don't necessarily know what I think about these seven verses in the Bible, but I, it, it reminds me of, a, of an author and a thought leader who's very inspiring to me, Andrew Maron, right? And he wrote this book in 2009 called Love is an Orientation. And his audience really was uh, conservative Christians. And I think he had such appeal. It might've been a little before his time, but I think he had such appeal because he wasn't asking people to trade in their theology about morality and sexuality it was asking them to sort of reprioritize, right? To think maybe love matters more and maybe we should pay attention to folks that are hurting. So I don't know, just the concept of quieter middle is, is you can have some different perspectives on the morality of this, but perhaps what matters more is attending to hurting folks.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, Brian, there's also an element here, just hearing you talk about the quiet middle of certainty, right? I mean, this is such a yes a hotly debated topic now in some circles, but for so long, you know, the the version of, of evangelicalism that I was raised in, which, yeah. you know, was I had a great experience honestly growing up in the church, but certainty was a was a prized yes, value, yes. and it was this idea that you know, gosh, we've we're two thousand years into this Christianity thing, and we we think we've got all the answers. We yeah. we're pretty sure that this orthodox view of of this or that is the right one, and we're very certain about that. Mm. And you know, certainty feels good, and certainty uh, make it's a lot easier than than being in the middle, you know. Uh, and so I think that's an, uh, also part of this conversation is making some peace with some uncertainty, mm-hmm. opening our minds, opening our hearts, becoming a little curious about yeah. a position that we we might not hold. so I think that's part of it as well.
0: Yeah, I have a later episode where I interview a good friend Stacy Frenis, who was a conservative Christian mom whose daughter came out and she had to sort of wrestle with her you know her 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 her, her faith convictions and her love for her daughter, and that was her biggest. Take home is that uncertainty she had to learn to live mm-hmm. in the tension of uncertainty around some of these matters and she said to her surprise she found a much deeper relationship with God and her daughter yeah. because of it yeah and I'm like, whoa like maybe we don't have to have all of this stuff figured out as much as we think like let's get the love right yeah. would have been her point and and it's okay if we don't have the other things figured out
1: yeah, yeah it's very easy to be certain about things that don't affect us
0: mm, Yes. you know
1: And the minute that something affects us directly, uh, sometimes it plunges us into an ocean of uncertainty and that's, that's uncomfortable and that doesn't feel good. And it's, it throws us around. And so, um, so I get it, I get that it's tough to be there, but, but it's also where I think a lot of growth comes from.
0: That makes me think of something that I, uh, like, for example, you and I had to sort of wrestle with Uh, how we thought about faith and sexuality and our relationship with God, because we were quote unquote in the front row. It was us. Stacy as a mom was in the front row with her daughter. She didn't have the luxury of not dealing with this. Um, Part of my heart, and I don't know exactly how to do it, but it's, it's, is to appeal to folks to maybe in the second or the third or the fourth row, right? That, that are close enough to it that they care, but they might not have like a very personal experience to sort of force the issue, if you will. And it's very human to like, <laughs> if it doesn't really affect our daily reality, we probably don't deal with it. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I hope that, um, I mean, I'd have your thoughts, but how, how do we appeal to folks about this concept of making things right with the LGBTQ plus community if you're not front and center, if you're in the second, third, and fourth row?
1: Well, something I wrote about in Blue Baby Spink, I said, you know, when I began that story, uh, 80,000 words, it was a long story, but I, in literally episode one, I said, listen, if you're gay, this story is not going to be gay enough for you. And yeah. if you're Christian, it's not going to be Christian enough for <laughs> you, right? Because again, we have these polarized yeah. extremes now. And I know, you know, we all know Christians who believe that Homosexuality is universally and uh, a universal sin. There is no wiggle room. There is no gray. The Bible says what it is, and the scriptures are very clear. Yeah. Right. On the flip side, I know gay people who think all Christians are uh, evil, despondent, despicable, bigoted mm-hmm. um, people who add no value to our culture whatsoever, and you know it would be better off if Christianity is a theological construct were eliminated. Right. So we we know that both of those exist, and I think it's important to say, it's important to lead to say, hey, we're actually rejecting, we're kind of rejecting both of those polarized extremes, and we're going to try yes. to wrestle again. I, I know it's cliche, but we're going to kind of wrestle with the middle, and we're going to talk through some of these issues with nuance and with mm-hmm. compassion and with kindness, but also with logic and intelligence and you yes. know, hopefully making arguments that are rooted in data and science as well. So I think, I think you have to have both.
0: Absolutely, and a lot of folks that I know and that I've, Talk to in this podcast series and otherwise live in that middle and they don't have to trade in their faith. It's, it's, it's a new, it's a new realization of how they can reconcile their love for people and their love with God. So cool. So another concept and nice segue, you didn't even realize, but one, one of the concepts when I'm sort of setting the table, if you will, for in my paper is this concept of one table, right? And it's not that, you know, rocket science, but I'll explain it from my observations, I, I've observed a lot of good conversations as it relates to faith and sexuality and maybe the two opposed communities, if you will, folks wanting to get in the middle, be more productive. But I, I see a lot of those things happening in silos. You know, it, example, I coach uh, uh, some folks at a wonderful church here in town who really want to move the needle towards being just and, and fair and healing and welcoming to the LGBTQ plus community. They're still a Fairly conservative church, but they want to get it right, right? They don't want to perpetuate wrongs and, and to be uh, exclusionary to a group of people that historically don't like God because of how they've been treated by the church. So they're they're convicted there, right? And when they're they're they they were looking at some of their policies and procedures, sort of under the hood, to see what was um, not inclusive to LGBTQ plus folks, and they were thinking about rewriting some of those to be more equitable, you know, and uh, and and I told them sort of, you know, it was sort of tongue in cheek, but I said, did you think about inviting an LGBTQ plus person to that table to help make decisions? And they're like, we never thought of that. (laughs) And they immediately thought that was a great idea. It just wasn't in their mindset. And so this concept of one table is just, I, and I am an idealistic person and I think I'm supposed to be, and I always will be. Um, so I'm staying with my 2080. you know, I think more (laughs) of us, but, but I, I think if we somehow can, uh, collaborate and solution together on how to make things right with, with different perspectives at the table, both conservative Christian and LGBTQ and everyone, everywhere in between, I just think we're going to find better solutions. And I think mostly we're going to find empathy. We're going we're to humanize this and we're going to understand each other and we're going to understand each other's hesitations. You know, like I remember when I was working on this, my uh, buddy Caleb, who's creative guy, and Ed, my amazing editor. Which, oh, thank you, Ed, wherever you are. Um, just having a great editor is a home run, especially if you've never written something like this before. But he was talking about these um, hesitations. Like I had this nice one table kumbaya idea, right? And he's like, "But there's real hesitations here." And my buddy Caleb says something like, "Well." you know, who represents the LGBTQ plus community saying, I don't want to be a project, you know, and there's been wounding and I'm not really interested in being rewounded. There's a hesitation over there to come to the table and trust the other side. And then there's a hesitation over on the conservative Christian side, not to stereotype here, but just go with me for a second. That's like, we can't get this wrong. Like that's way too risky to lean into this, you know? And, and I understand both of those hesitations. And so how do we bring our hesitations to the table <laughs> and, and and figure things out together? Any thoughts there? Yeah,
1: yeah there's a there's a, an idea that I've talked about in the past. I call it pre-forgiveness. <laughs> and I, I learned this through a mentor of mine from college. Uh, in the college ministry I was involved with, there was a guy that sort of mentored and discipled me, wonderful man, uh, ministry leader for many years. And you know, he definitely uh, then, as he does now, hold very conservative views on sort of the, the sexual ethics of uh, Orthodox Christianity, we'll say. Yep. And so there were years before I came out, I was, he was one of the first people I came out to because I just trusted him. Though I knew his beliefs on the issue, he just loved me so well, and there was such a deep foundation of trust there that I knew it was yeah. safe. Yeah, and so there was a thing he would do in our conversations, and I'll never forget it because you know once I came out to him, you know he uh, he became very curious, which I, I always recommend if you're <laughs> if you're not gay and you ta- you're talking to a gay person, let yourself be curious, let yourself ask questions. But what he would say is in the midst of those little s- sessions we would have, he would say, "Brett, gosh, like I've got a question, and I don't know if this is going to be offensive. So if it's offensive, please forgive me in advance. <laughs> but here it is." <laughs> So like, and of course the things he was asking were, they were not offensive, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciated. But he wasn't sure. Yeah. He wasn't sure. And yeah. I appreciated the honesty of that, right? As we're sitting at this one table, I appreciated the humility and the honesty for him to say, gosh, just in case this is offensive, my that's not my heart. That's right. not my intent. And so yep. please forgive me in advance. So I'm like, when someone leads with that as a gay man, you can say, you can literally say anything almost, you know, like I am so my heart and my mind are so open when you lead with that kind of energy. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think needs to be happening at this one table concept you're talking about on both sides, there's gotta be a foundation of trust. There has to be uh, a leading with empathy. There has to be leading with a fantastic principle, uh, assuming the best. We have to assume the best of each other versus uh, instantly demonizing and becoming yes, combative. Yes,
0: yes, yeah. There's some work there because that doesn't always happen. No,
1: nope. it's rare. It's very <laughs> rare. And it's, it is sad. I, I'm like you, Brian. I'm, I am compulsively optimistic and idealistic, but it is sad to me that um, your average person's inability at times to display that, to show humility, to show curiosity, to, to accept the idea that oh, I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong. Some deeply held belief I've had for 50 years, I might be wrong on that thing. And it takes mm-hmm. a lot of courage to, to, to say that.
0: Mm-hmm. It's good. One other uh, setting table principle that I have, which is really a principle of my life. Um, is a section of my paper, I talk about Jesus is my hero. And and this is no new concept to to anyone, but I it's something where I just feel like we can't seem to get it right. And so maybe help me figure out what that's about. It's just the Jesus model, you know, and that uh, we, uh, the title of this uh, episode is called What Matters Most. If you ask me what matters most, it's the defense of the outcast, right? That's the most consistent, assuming that the Accounts of Jesus' life are reasonably accurate that we have. You pay attention to who he hung out with and who he didn't, and what he did and what he didn't do, and what he said and what he didn't say. And there's clear consistency towards caring about the person on the outside looking in and attending to them and to their needs, and to make them feel that they are not on the outside. But he flips the script and he says, It's about you. It's not about the folks that are on the inside. The only people, as we know, that he was ticked off at were the religious folks that made people feel like on the outside. That's the most consistent thing that resonates for me in the picture of Jesus and which to me is the heart of God, you know? And so the defense of the outcast is, you know, unfortunately as Christians, we have a reputation uh, of judging and excluding people. That's our reputation. We have a reputation of defending positions more than defending people. That makes me sad that, and I know a lot of people that are Christians that would like to flip that script and really defend people more than positions, but we still have a ways to go there. So,
1: you know, in the last couple of years, I've become sort of a hobbyist fascinated with Roman history. Hmm. And it's interesting cool. because I really think it's a, it's a fabulous way to augment your understanding of the Bible, right? Because the entire, uh, at least New Testament, takes place in the context of Roman Empire. Right, and so the more you understand about how that empire functioned, you actually—it's very revealing. And so one of the big takeaways, you know, the, the Roman Empire lasted roughly a thousand years, and it is such a story of power mm. from start to finish. It is domination. It is war. It is barbarians. It is conquest. It is expanding the empire. You know, at one point, the you know the Roman Empire is as far north as Scotland, down to Africa, over into you know the Middle East, and so um, it's a culture. Uh, uh, that is oriented around power, and it values power because if you didn't have power, you died back then, right? You know, you were going to die from famine or barbarians or some other thing. And so, so to me, that's what makes this idea of Jesus uh, and the stories about Jesus so countercultural and yes. so bizarre, I would say bizarre, mm-hmm. the fact that here you have this man who did rise to prominence, and we're <laughs> we talking about him two thousand years later, who is telling the story of anti-power. Mm-hmm. He's talking about loving your enemy. He's literally going to the prostitute that everyone is just raging and ready to kill and ready to stone. And he's having this very tender conversation. Mm-hmm. He's telling stories about the good Samaritan, right? Which is this idea of, uh, I'm going to relinquish my power and give it to someone who needs it, right? And I'm going to help them along the way. Mm-hmm. And so I think this, this idea that, you've, you know, that, you're, that you're sussing out here is so, so central, to Jesus, is central to the gospel, it's central to the Bible. And, you know, we can, we can, we can focus on individual verses you know, all day long, but you're exactly right. This theme that we see in the person of Jesus is one of honoring the outcast, uh, and then counter to that, honestly being very combative towards the established mm-hmm. religious powers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you really think about that, it's pretty wild.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. I love it. So assuming for a minute that the Jesus model is the way to go and assuming that you are reasonably bought in on the concept of that we can make things right with the LGBTQ plus community who historically, uh, through lots of stories can, sh- can show that, um, there's been some hurt and some rejection within the church. Um, I think for me, I can speak for myself. I actually had a uh, uh, a lot of my wounding was outside of church. And I was really, and I realized, uh, you know, my growing up and when I didn't feel like I fit in, and some of the hurt and the wounding that I had as an LGBTQ plus kid growing up um, was a little more in the hallways more than it was church. Church for me actually was a refuge. Mm. But I learned through many stories that I kind of was the exception to the rule. So in, in uh, uh, my paper, basically, after we kind of set the table with some of those concepts, I, I propose uh, a, a little path. You know, okay, so if you're reasonably bought in on this and you're curious about more productive ways to engage or defense of the outcast or anything that I just talked about, follow me down this little path. And I, I'm a process geek, I'll admit. So, of course, everything has to have, you know, three steps to it. But basically, those three steps that I invite people to um, is step one, knowing, knowing LGBTQ stories, letting them impact you. Step two, responding to that. Okay, now that you've humanized, let your heart humanize this issue a little bit, how do you feel about that? What do you wanna do about that? And then step three, engaging. What's a more productive way to engage and help heal hurts, right wrongs, and make things right uh, within this community? So that's sort of the, the framework of the back half of the paper, if you will. So step one. Uh, knowing LGBTQ plus stories. When I was um, uh, writing for this and in the kind of the creative planning uh, season of making things right, uh, I really felt compelled to do a survey. And part of that survey was uh, stimulated or, or inspired by a book by Andrew Marin. I mentioned him before, a real cool, great guy, thought leader uh, in this space. And his last book he wrote was Uh, 2016, Us Versus Us. Uh, Super compelling title. And basically, it was based on a research process where he uh, just basically unpacked the history of the LGBTQ plus uh, experience with the church. And he had some pretty amazing statistics. But one of the main statistics is is that for folks that, um, well, I'll run by them because they're super cool. So 80, see if I'll remember if I remember my statistics. 86% of LGBTQ plus folks were raised in Uh, a conservative faith-based community, specifically the Christian church uh, majority, which that was compared to 75% of the general U.S. population. Out of those folks, over half, I think it was 51%, left the church at the age of adulthood. 18, I think, was the cutoff. So basically at 18, I'm like, peace out, I'm out of here, church isn't working for me. That was compared to 27% of the general U.S. population. Uh, Number one reason, far and away, negative personal experiences. That didn't even show up on the list for the general U.S. population. And then the last question, when they were asked what it would take to return, they didn't know. The general answer is like, I don't know, but I'm open to returning to... Excuse me. That was the last statistic. 71%... Fact check me here, somebody. 76, (laughs) 70. I think it was 71. Check my paper. 71% that they were open to returning to their faith that was versus like a single digit to the general US population. So really compelling flow of stats. I read that and I thought, gosh, if it really is negative personal experiences, maybe if I could gather some of those, it would help kind of up our knowledge in how to make things right. Right? So, I, so I did this survey, and I put it out there and had a, a, a bunch of respondents, and it's just amazing how many people who don't even, barely even know me or just know of me would pour their heart out in you know, an anonymous survey, and I did some follow-up interviews with a dozen of them and, and really gathered a lot of LGBTQ plus stories. I feature some of those in my paper. Lots of hurt. I was really taken aback. Like I told you, my experience in church was a refuge. The vast majority was not. Um, just, I was taken aback at the level of unresolved hurt and wounding um, in the name of God. What, what, what's your take on um, LGBTQ plus stories in the church, and 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 most importantly, why is it important to kind of humanize this issue and have some empathy? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Since I released Blue Baby Spink years ago, I you know, my inbox has gotten a steady drip of. Messages that have probably borne out similar to what you did in your in your sort of survey. Yeah, it's stories, right? I mean, my inbox is filled with stories. Most of them are heartbreaking. Um, they definitely are very sobering. The the level of pain and trauma that people have experienced, oftentimes at the pain of the church, not or at the expense of the church, not always, but not oftentimes. Always, but yes. And so, yeah, I, I have been appraised of every manner of suffering on this issue, and it's very sad. Um, and, and this is where I often will remind my conservative you know, evangelical friends, you know, a thing I always challenge them to is to really think about, uh, oftentimes I think people, they look at sort of the broader culture, particularly the events of the last few years, the legalization of gay marriage, and they think gays are doing great, mm-hmm. right? They have social cachet in some of the higher echelons of society, um, you know, and they think about the, you know, the, maybe these, you know, activists in New York who are very angry and loud and do but they're also successful and very cosmopolitan. And, they, you know, and oftentimes that can lead people to think, well, why are we, why should we be, you know, look, I mean, gosh, we've, the gays have gotten all the rights and they're doing just fine. <laughs> what I challenge people is like, don't comp- don't just compare everything to the sort of the top of that social hierarchy, go to the bottom, yep. which is often it's the teens it's the kids in, you know, small towns that go to church whose mom kicks them out of the house when they're 16, when they turn gay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, and so that's to me, that's where I'm more interested in is how does our theology, how does the way we interact with LGBTQ people affect those folks? Mm-hmm. Because if it's toxic for those folks, it's toxic for everyone. And we've got to be real, have a real honest assessment of how we've treated those folks in the past and how we plan on treating them moving forward.
0: I think that's, that's great. And it made me think again, remember I asked you, how do you appeal to the folks in the second, third and fourth row? I think a lot of uh, a really good first step sometimes is to just make sure you have LGBTQ plus people in your life, you know, and that you're engaging with them and you're asking them, you know, look around you. Um, who do you know that you could sit down and ask them more about their story? You know, and just really try to let your heart be informed by stories of LGBTQ plus folks. Because I think if you do that, you're going to see that there's some things that we can make right.
1: Brian, you're exactly right. And this, um, the most common question I get from really well-intending uh, conservative folks is they'll say, B- gosh, BT, what, what, what can we do? How can the church engage better with the LGBTQ community. It's a very complex question with a lot of different answers. Here's the simplest thing your average person could do. And it's what you just said, ask people their story. Mm -hmm. And literally here's the phrase, right? I'm I'm a big believer. And sometimes we just need the language. The language is what's your story? And that's not really a, a question we ask that often, but what I found is it's it's vague enough to leave it open-ended where you, you're allowing them to share as much or as little as they want. Mm-hmm. What I found is that question often will open up a floodgate mm-hmm. because a lot of LGBTQ people are, they've never been asked that. They've never been invited to share the stories of their pain, share the stories of their upbringing, share the yes. stories of the hard things they've been through. And for some of us, that can be the most healing conversation in the world. And my early conversations when I've come out to friends one-on-one, I wept. I probably wept through the first 50 of those conversations because so many of my good friends would they would have some version of that question. Yep. And it would get me talking and as as I'm talking I'm stumbling across old stories and it's pulling out this emotion but that was literally like therapy for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and again, I can't speak for everyone because some folks aren't ready to share their story and if someone takes a step back, right. you've got to honor that and acknowledge Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But yeah, to your point, knowing knowing knowing. Knowing to me is about asking and then listening, asking, and then listening. So I think this is spot on.
0: And I, and I do think that stories of LGBTQ individuals have taken a backseat to more ideological, theological discussions here. Yep. <laughs> yep that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Good stuff.
1: Hey, one quick point here, Brian. Listen, I know we're talking about your your white paper, which I I don't think I knew what that was either, but I've gone through it. If you're listening to this, I would challenge you, go to Brian's website. I think this is available as a download. Yep. Check it. Just download it. This is such a good uh, initial framework for entering this conversation. Share it with friends. Um, But I, I really think it's worth your time, so...
0: Thank you. There's a little baby commercial for me. I love that. I thanks. mean
1: it. It's, it's fantastic. So.
0: <laughs> no, it's good. And we've got some really cool assets up there and resources to kind of think about how to step into this conversation. So cool. thanks for that. Okay. So step one, knowing. Assuming that you've entered in and allowed your heart to be broken by stories and to humanize this issue, step two is respond. Like what, what are you going to do with that? What does it, you know, I won't like... Presume that everyone that engages with this podcast or reads my white paper, I'm bringing them to a crossroads. (laughs) But a handful may be, you know, you may be curious about this subject because you don't like how you've sort of responded to LGBTQ individuals or this conversation to date. And you are open to a more productive way, although you want to, you know, be true to your faith as well. And I, I think that the two can absolutely coexist, it's just foreign to a lot of people. So it's sort of like, how do you respond? You know, how do you, Now that you know this, what do you want to do? How, how do you reprioritize? Um, one of my episodes is uh, entitled Crossroads, I think, and I interview a couple, uh, uh, two stories, Greg and Lynn McDonald, Stacey Frennis. The, cons- the, the common thread between them is they were conservative uh, Christians, wonderful people. Uh, they're, they're, both their kids came out. And they really had to all of a sudden wrestle, you know, they were in the front row, of course. Um, so they were able to wrestle with that, but they found a way to align their, their to reconcile their faith and their beliefs with their love for their kids. Um, but what about for the rest of us, second, third, fourth row, or maybe even the back row, although that I, those are probably the noisy extremes that I don't want to talk to, but, but the folks that are close enough to this that are interested in responding to these stories and thinking differently, um, you know, what do you think there?
1: Um, yeah, I think the response piece is so important. You know, I, I, my observation was that what I found early on when coming out was there were two extremes people would often exhibit after I came out to them. One would be the next time or the next few times I saw them, all they wanted to talk about was gay stuff
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, to the point of like, it felt <laughs> dismissive of the rest of me. Right. But that uh, might've been like sort of an awkward way of them wanting to let you know that they, absolutely. they were good. You're they were good. Exactly right. It was I always like, well-intentioned. Okay, everything in my life isn't gay here. Yeah, I mean, right. I appreciate this. Yes. But. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> I've often said, you know, my, my sexuality uh, doesn't define me, but it's in the definition of me. Yeah,
0: yeah. That makes sense. I love that language. I would um, say the same thing.
1: Yeah. And, and then the other extreme is, which is honestly more common, they never bring it up again. <laughs> they, they, it's like that conversation never happened. I mean, I know I know a man who's in his early fifties now. He came out to his parents when he was maybe eighteen or nineteen. It's never been talked about. Yeah, it's yeah. never been talked about. Not one time because he's actually still closeted. But they've never brought it back up. Mm-hmm. And so I think when it comes to that response piece, it requires empathy, compassion, nuance to kind of know that 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 healthy middle ground where it's not something that we're now projecting. All of the rainbow things on this person, <laughs> and ass- making vast assumptions about them now that we know they're gay or L. G. or anywhere on the L. G. B. T. Q. spectrum, and at the same time, we're not indicating that we're so freaked out by that revelation that now we're scared to even bring it back
0: up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: I, I do think it, it takes some practice there. It takes some grace. But again, I think if you lead with that, if you lead with grace, compassion, understanding, curiosity, that pre-forgiveness, mm-hmm. um, you'll probably be just fine.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why. And again. I think that's why that first step in the process is so important. Like you almost have to like stay in the space of really understanding stories and allowing those to sort of inform and break your heart. Because I think until that occurs, how are you going to be able to respond in a way that to date feels counterintuitive to what your belief system is? Yeah. Right? Yep.
1: I think another phrase here, tell me more. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine you have that initial conversation. It goes okay. A month passes. The next time you see that person, hey... Remember back when we talked, you told me the story about that thing. Tell me more about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because what that shows is, oh, well, they've been thinking about it. They've been pondering it. They've been thoughtfully processing this revelation. Um, so to me, that feels like another healthy way to, to keep the conversation going.
0: Yep, that's good. And then my, uh, my final proposed step in the process, kind of the obvious one, is engage, like action. You know, I, I feel like we can be a little stuck in the conversation on this one. Um, some different folks that I've sort of coached here, I feel like you can be stuck in the conversation. You know, how, how do you sort of move into making a difference in your own life? What are some practical ways? Like you just mentioned one a minute ago, like you tell the church, like the, the, the complex answer, a lot of different things that you could do around humanizing this issue or equity or justice or what have you. But the simplest thing may be, just to start having conversations and letting LGBTQ plus folks be a part of your life and, and your, your, your influence, if you will, as you sort of think about what matters, you know. But different ways to engage on the subject, like, like let's say from, uh, from church perspective, what, what, what are different ways? Well, well, I know what different ways are. Like I'll give you a couple ideas. Like I've, when I was talking about the church that was sort of wrestling with their different policies of what was inclusive or not. I think leaning into that and having an LGBTQ plus person at the table to lean into that, uh, to move towards a little more justice, I think is, is great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at a church level, I'm going to be honest, Brian, this is a real, real hard conversation. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the big, it's very common for churches to say, oh, everyone's welcome. Everyone can come to, every, we're open to everyone, right? Which I think is great. But then, often, what oftentimes what happens is an LGBT person they they hear that they go they attend. Well, they're involved. They want to be involved at the next step, and they want to volunteer in the kids ministry or the youth ministry. And oftentimes, those people are met with a you know a stop sign, and mm-hmm. um, and that can be very, 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 very painful. And I've heard so many stories of that happening. It's painful to the point of being traumatic, where it really burns people in their faith. Where basically, there's you know you Can be involved to a certain degree. I mean, I know a church in Atlanta, a very popular church, where you know they have an unwritten policy, but if you call them and ask, they will say that LGBT people can you can serve on the parking team,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but not the, the children's ministry or the youth ministry. And listen, we're not here to debate the you know <laughs> the theology of this is a whole other conversation. I'm sure you'll t- hit on that later, uh, touch on that later, but uh, it can be very difficult. So, I, I often say. Churches have to do the best they can. They need to get counsel. They need to listen to LGBTQ people. But I take everything down to the individual, individual level. So yes. if you're listening to this, I'm like, great, we can d- debate the church's position on this forever. But my question is, what are you doing, right? Are you engaging with LGBT people? Are you making friends with LGBT people?
0: It really is, it's weirdly simple. And just giving yourself, sorry if I interrupted no, you. Just good. giving yourself permission to see it to be that simple. Like, how do you remove? (laughs) It's no easy task. I like that's why you said some of the efforts is less institutional and more individual. I really do like to appeal to individuals more than I do churches. (laughs) I mean, if churches want my help to think through things, great. But I really love appealing to individuals because we are the church as individuals. And we can decide individually how we want to respond to this, how we want to, you know, be collaborative or not or, or whatever, right? It, it doesn't have to be at the direction of the church or your pastor. So, yeah. Yeah. One more thought
1: there, Brian. So I have a, uh, on the side, I have a online Christian support group for the Christian parents of LGBTQ kids. It's called Harbor. Yep. And I've run it for now four, almost four years. But in our group, we have a mix of parents from all over the world, mostly U.S., but some international. And they all have LGBTQ kids, and they, they range theologically, right? Some are what we call affirming, meaning they affirm or uh, they support the idea that, that God can affirm same-sex relationships. And then we have those who, I, the phrase I use is traditional. They subscribe to traditional sexual ethic that uh, God cannot endorse same-sex relationships. So we have both of those kinds of parents in there, which is pretty unusual because it's sometimes hard to keep harmony. Um, but one thing I've told those parents is, and I've said from day one, I said, I am, I'm not here to change you. If you're on that traditional side, mm-hmm. I'm very affirming, but my goal is not to change you because I've actually learned one of the one of the quickest routes to anxiety and stress is trying trying to change someone, right? People do change, but when we try to change them, it typically doesn't work. And so what I say is, hey, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help you love, support and understand your LGBTQ child better. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so I would actually take that same framework and apply it to maybe someone listening to this podcast who's on that traditional side of the equation and say, listen, I don't think I'm, I'm not just putting a gun to your head and saying, change, change, or you're a bigot. You're not either, right? I think we have a little more compassion than that. But I would say, challenge yourself. How can you love, support, and understand your LGBTQ neighbor better? Mm-hmm. Because if you ask that question and you begin there, there's all kinds of things you can do in this conversation that actually don't require any theological change. And listen, you know, a lot of us will change theologically and shift. I, my theology change. you know, yeah. we learn new things, we have new experiences, but I would just say start there when it comes to engagement. So
0: absolutely. And this is about theology. Yeah. You know, this is about what does the heart of God? Think about this stuff, you know, and how do we, yep keep it human?
1: Yeah, that's the ultimate question. And that's what we're all struggling with. And I think we need to give everyone, you know, a good dose of of grace on that, because there are, what, 70,000 permutations of the Christian faith. (laughs) I think that's the number of denominations that I've read that exist. And so, you know, it's easy to try to boil it down to these, you know, very certain things. But at the end of the day, we're all wrestling with, Uh, (laughs) with God and with Jesus and how we apply these principles into our daily lives. And so I'm a believer in extending a lot of grace there.
0: Yep. So let's uh let's not assume that every listener here is this demographic we've been talking about conservative to moderate Christians, mostly straight. <laughs> <laughs> Although we love all of you. Um let's you know, what about LGBTQ individuals? You know, specifically folks that have been hurt by the church uh or 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 family or what have you and feel like that they have no place in a relationship with God. Like what my thought there is well a couple things a couple of years ago i helped found an organization called renovus uh, you can find it online if you're an lgbtq plus person who's been hurt by the church uh, or just has not had a good faith experience but you want to rediscover jesus in a safe way that's not in church um, check that out and we have good, you know, groups and resources for you. I think you deserve, our tagline is reclaiming faith for LGBTQ plus individuals. You know, you deserve a right perspective of God and a safe place to rediscover your faith if that's what you're looking for, you know, but what, uh, what, what other, what other invitations can you have for somebody who's LGBTQ plus that feels like they're on the outside looking in here?
1: So, yeah, I mean, my first thing would be, I'm sorry, um, you know, I spent years and years and years in the closet, It was yep. so dark, and I can remember it just feeling, uh, um, yeah, it, can, it could just felt so dark and sad and lonely. Um, and so I think what's interesting now is my life doesn't feel that way at all. And so there was, you know, a campaign that came out years ago called It Gets Better. You know, it was this campaign really for, for LGBTQ youth. Trapped in these scenarios, you know, and they they can't escape. And there was this sort of mantra of, "Hey, hang on, keep hanging on, it's going to get better." So I do believe that. Um, you know, my my thoughts would be step number one, if if this is you, particularly if you're newly out or still kind of working to come out. Your first step, I think, is to surround yourself with people who love you unconditionally. And I don't care what really what their faith is. Like, you need a core group of friends, of ride or dies two, three, five people who have your back so that if your world implodes, particularly if you come from a conservative context or family leaves, you've got what we know in the gay community is chosen family, right? So find, relentlessly work to find those people and have them in your corner because I'm telling you, there's a community piece of this conversation that does not get talked about enough. Yeah, And every single one of us needs community we need close vulnerable friendships it's the in my opinion the absolute uh panacea to a really screwed up culture uh, the second thing i think after you do that is allow yourself to grieve and get mad mm. right like everybody needs a mat an angry season and that's gonna that's gonna look a little real different um and i would you know, i would advise you know avoid avoid lashing out attacking people and being super toxic but at the same time grieve be sad right? If you've been trapped in the closet and you've been filled with pain, you need to allow yourself a season to to be sad about that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really healthy. But I would say sort of the third step here, don't get stuck there.
0: Mm. Because
1: I do, I know a lot of people who are stuck in that angry phase and they've been there for about a decade. And what we know from psychology is that's actually real unhealthy Mm. for your mental health. And so once you get through that grieving and sad process, and it may take a while, you begin the healing process. That involves therapy. That involves that community, that involves maybe a different faith tradition. Because once you can get yourself on that on that path to healing, boy, there's a whole lot of light on the other mm. side. A whole lot of light and a whole lot of joy. And if the good Lord blesses you with a person to love and marry, you know, that's an even e- an extra bonus. And so, so yeah, I would just say if that's you, hang on. It does get better. Keep doing the work. Do the work on yourself. It's so easy to, to point at outside forces, but I'm a big believer that. I am in control of my future and only me. I am mm-hmm. in control of the happiness that I feel and the future and the joy, and so I'm going to take that very seriously and do the work it takes to to be in a healthy place.
0: Yep, I love that. I do have a, It just makes me think of so many of my friends, LGBTQ in particular, and they have uh, rediscovered their faith with Jesus, and that's a good thing. Um, but there's still just so much anger at the church and what it is to kind of step in and lean in to find your own wholeness around that and not to hang on to kind of really legitimate wrongs against you, you know, uh, whether from faith or, you know, family or whatever that was wounding to you, but to really, there is wholeness there. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I, I think there is a, I've thought lately about, there is sort of this, there's a very dull subterranean level of anger that you always experience. And I find myself there now, like I'm years into this conversation and feel healthy and done the therapy and you know, all the things. But what I've often, what I've tried to do is to counterbalance that um, with a lot of gratitude. Mm. And I, this is, I'm on, I've been on a soapbox lately with my gay friends to say, listen, the world can look like a dumpster fire. It does most days. But I need to remind you, there may not be a better time and place in the history of the world to be gay mm. than in America right now. Yeah. Right? I mean, we can marry. We, you know, discrimination is at an all time low. We can get jobs. We can be out in many places. Uh, If you can get to a a place where you can be accepted, you know, which is a a lot of larger cities are that way. You can live a really beautiful, meaningful life that's really not much different from our straight counterparts. So that fills me with gratitude. Every day I wake up, I can't believe I have a husband, and we have a house, and we have cats, and uh, I can't believe we get to live such a beautiful and rich life. And so I have just chosen intentionally to sort of let my thoughts and my heart and my soul marinate on that. Because if we sit around and marinate on the bad, y'all, it just puts us in a real bad place. Yeah, yeah And yeah. I get it. I get it. <laughs> the world sucks sometimes. But yeah. man, bring your mind, lead your mind back to those positive things. No, and it's, things. It's, it's,
0: a, it's a good, important balance. Absolutely, there's, there's always progress to be made. And you can point to a lot of things that we still have yet to figure out for LGBTQ plus folks, in the church and otherwise, but balancing that with how far we've come. Like, yeah. I think that's super important. Good stuff.
1: I feel like we have, we've made things right. Mm-hmm. It's been done. <laughs> we were not making, they've been made. The things have been made right. Uh, we can shut down. This is the final podcast episode. We fixed all the problems. <laughs> right, this right, was right. We
0: <laughs> don't even need the other ones. That's fun. <laughs> Kidding, of course. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining today. It's really, uh, I feel like I've got a new friend. Yeah. Yeah.
1: This was fun. It's well, fun. I wish you the best, Brian. And um, yeah, like I said, everybody get that white paper and soak it
0: up. Yeah, no good stuff. And coming up are episodes where we're just kind of kind of deep dive on each of those. Like the next episode is where I share my story. <laughs> I say that cheapishly because I'm kind of a private guy, you know, like I don't really put my story out there that much um, because I, I and there are different reasons for that. One, I'm private. Two, like my way is not the only way, you know, and I respect different stories and different perspectives. But my perspective on life and faith, and my sexuality has radically changed uh, over the years. And so I'm stepping into that in the second episode and it felt good to just kind of you know, lay that down and maybe my story will help you yeah. think about how to make things right. After that, we have an episode just simply called Knowing. And I, I uh, unpack some of these stories that I've learned uh, from LGBTQ plus folks, both hurts and healings to inform. And I've actually got three of those folks Uh, who filled out my survey and did interviews that are going to join me and and share a little bit of their story, just to really get the color and the landscape of some LGBTQ plus stories. Episode after that is when I invited those Christian uh, parents whose kids came out and talking about their story and how they navigated their sort of crossroads, if you will, with their, you know, their faith and their beliefs and beliefs. uh, and actually, have an episode where I'm leaning in uh, on the theology piece. I didn't really want to. Ooh, it's funny. You're I, brave, Brian. I know. Brave. I, I remember when I called you. We were talking and planning for this. Like, we're not going to talk about like gay theology, <laughs> are we? I'm like, no, we're not. Um, and and to to in all seriousness, I do tend to not avoid that subject, but I think it's the wrong conversation. It's the conversation that gets. All the airwaves. Yeah. I'm interested in making things right and healing hurts with and defending the outcast. Yeah. And I'm not. I don't want to be distracted by this conversation that gets all the airwaves. However, I've gotten some feedback from folks that that's like legitimate. Those are legitimate stumbling blocks that people need to wrestle with. You know, as far as theology and morality, and I certainly cannot leave that conversation. But I met this wonderful. Wonderful guy, Dr. David Gushy, who just happens to live in our town, <laughs> um, who just brings a, a thoughtful, conservative perspective to reexamining what the Bible does and doesn't say about sexuality and morality. So we're going to go there, <laughs> but thankfully I've got a good friend with me. And then we wrap up the episode with a two-part series called um, One Table. Where we basically model what we talked about. And we bring in, I think I've got three different guests, three to four different guests in each episode. And we talk about this, okay, so what thing. And they all represent different perspectives. We have uh, Jennifer Knapp, who's joining, uh, different Justin Lee, who's a wonderful author, uh, different individuals that bring different backgrounds, but basically trying to solution and figure this out together. So. Gosh,
1: I love it. I can't That's wait to listen ahead. to all these episodes. Yeah. I love the plan, man. You're ready to go. It's
0: right. fantastic. Well, thanks for coming today. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Cheers. Brian Nitzel is an author, speaker, and thought leader. To learn more, visit briannitzel.com or follow him on Instagram at Brian Nitzel.